Males make up 49% of the population. Shockingly, 80% of our suicides are males. The world we live in today is transitioning fast. With this transition, mental wellness for men is becoming increasingly necessary. With testosterone counts declining and the market changing, men are being challenged in more ways than one. Today, our guest John has made it his life mission to support men, enabling them to have the strength and courage to adapt in the new world being birthed before our eyes. If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, it's the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need all in one place. Let me explain. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. So download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. John has found Xenotheory, a platform to support men permanently with heartbreak and depression. His mission is to empower men to have a meaningful, heroic life they can be proud of. He is a personal guide for turning tragedy into triumph. I came across John's profile on Instagram and felt called to introduce his service to you, my Matrix members. Follow our show and bookmark our podcast so you don't miss out on our fantastic Matrix mentors. John, welcome to the Organic Matrix. It's incredible to have you. Please tell us where you're from. Thank you for having me, yes. Um, my name is John, as you mentioned. Uh, I am based out of Connecticut, although I am frequently traveling to Midtown New York City, uh, some neighboring tri-state area, I would say. That's awesome. I'm from New York City as well. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm from New York City, but I know you're Connecticut. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was moved by your personal story and your triumph from clinical depression. Can you please tell us the story of your journey and how you got to the point of being the mentor you are today? Yeah, so... Um, I'll try not to make it too lengthy and too in-depth, um, but I will share some, I guess, key pivotal milestones in my personal journey, and I'm sure a lot of people can relate. Uh, in fact, um, I've spoken with a lot of men that do tend to relate to the same kind of pivotal milestones in their journey in mental health and like finding themselves, I would say. So that's something we'll get into later, like the patterns and all these things. But um, I grew up, I would say the, the anomalous, the, the anomaly started in my life, at least in childhood, where I was always very, very isolated involuntarily, by the way, I was kind of bullied, I was exiled, I was kind of picked on just for being quiet or being just generally socially awkward or weird. It didn't really phase me that much, but I did spend a significant uh, time of my like childhood developmental stages in isolation. So I'm sure that obviously affected my social skills my value of myself, I didn't have any attention, validation, et cetera, no social support. So if I was ever feeling, I don't know, down for whatever reason, I didn't really have anybody to lean on. So I kind of was forced to become self-reliant, but it was a paradox because I had a very bad self-image um, and like very low self-esteem. So I kind of couldn't rely on myself. I, I, I had to outsource that validation, that attention, that affection. And I was kind of in this paradox where I didn't have anybody to outsource. So how I spent the remainder of my childhood and like early, I would say adolescent years getting into teenage years would be in escapism. So escapism is basically a phenomenon where you're feeling stressed by something. It could really be anything. It could be work. It could be a relationship issue. It could be bills, just stress of any kind. You have two options, basically. You have the option of facing it, which usually takes discomfort. It takes fear. It could be uncertain. It could be very daunting. Uh, you, you face it, and then that has its own consequences on its own, but the eventual 
result is triumph or like conquering it and becoming stronger, addressing those issues, right? But as mentioned, you know, if you're a young guy, you don't have the support system, you don't have the faith, you don't have the belief in yourself, you don't know where to go, you don't have any mentors, you don't have any information. Your, your other alternative is an escape, which is basically when you lie to yourself, when you repress something, when you ignore your problems, when you just waste time partying or drinking or doing drugs or whatever it happens to be. And my, I guess, escape of choice happened to be like in, in a virtual world was, was video games when I was growing up. I got very, very immersed in this because, and I have a whole like kind of theory on my own uh, about this. It's like a simulated version of accomplishment in reality, right? You get the hits of dopamine, you get the sense of progression, of character development, of satisfaction, of recognition, of social status, of esteem. All these basic human needs, they're just virtual in a way. So instead of doing this in my real life, again, the the stress I had, instead of doing the actual work, I did the escape and I got a substitute. I got a virtual substitute of the actual like neurochemicals that I would have gotten if I had chosen to do this the authentic way. But uh, I didn't know any better, obviously. I was a teenager, I was kind of lost. So I was doing this for a lot a lot of my uh, developmental years. And then the, the pivotal, I guess, milestone was, I wanna say I had to be around 16 or 17. Um, and obviously I'm of age, I'm starting to, trying to get into dating and stuff like this, being attracted and, and trying to start, start dating basically. And I'm seeing other people around me get into happy relationships. Uh, and just feel loved and feel appreciation. And it's a human need. So I was trying to, I guess, emulate that in some way. But as mentioned, I had no experience. I had no social skills. I had no self-confidence. I had no idea how to talk to anybody, let alone someone I was attracted to. This whole um, complex of me outsourcing my validation meant I was one of these like traditional stereotypical nice guys where it's like you're always trying to be on somebody's good side. Uh, you never want to upset a girl. You always want to present yourself in the best light. You always want to. You'll basically let yourself be walked on in order for her to put up with you because the narrative, and I won't get too deep into this, but the narrative, the psychological framework that, that's that's underpinning all of that is if I look at myself as so unworthy of love, of attention, of affection, of I'm a burden to be around, I'm not even worth anyone talking to, and somebody deals with me, somebody deals, somebody gives me attention, let alone affection, and appreciation if it's authentic. Um, I felt like she would be such an angel. She had to be such a kind and benevolent person to be able to sacrifice to put up with me. Therefore, in compensation, she deserves the absolute world. She deserves the best. And that's a very, actually a very, very common theme that I see in a lot of young men. And I think this really stems from at least one methodology that could tackle this early on is develop, developing a better self-image and more self-esteem and more confidence. Because if you don't have those things, again, you're going to get walked on. So wrapping, wrapping this phase up, this was a pivotal phase because as I got into dating, um, I was starting to face rejection, obviously, because I was very weird. I was not socially inclined in any way. Uh, I was putting off that whole nice guy persona. I was just not being authentic. I was not being myself. It was always just like a, uh, people call it like a yes, man. You never actually have opinions of your own. It's just, I'm trying to be someone that I think she would like. And again, that's inauthentic. I'm, I'm acting at that point. So obviously that's repellent behavior. No one's going to put up with that. So I would get rejected. I would get abandoned. I would try to propose my feelings for someone and they would just neglect me or reject it. And this is a, this is a, uh, another theory that we we could we might be able to get into if we have enough time later. But a very very big influential issue for men is 
validation from women. Like a lot of us don't want to admit it. And I, and I think I have to look at more into evolutionary psychology about why this is the case, but a significant majority, if, if not like all the men that I actually work with have been like catalyzed by a either severe heartbreak or a divorce or breaking up or severe rejection, or it's like something with dating and women. And they tied so much of their self-worth in being picked or chosen, if you will, by, by a woman. And when that's crushed, when that dream is not realized, it breaks them, absolutely shatters them. Um, and again, I have to look into the evolutionary psychology on why that is the case. I do have my own theories, but I'll be ranting for an hour if we get into all of that. Um, so anyways, again, wrapping back up, that was a pivotal milestone because I had, I had basically proposed my emotions and feelings for someone, but it was in a very codependent kind of, um, unhealthy, toxic way. You know what I mean? It was kind of proposed as like, Hey, love me back or I'm not going to be okay. Obviously that's a lot of pressure to put on somebody. No one wants to hear that, especially when we're all teenagers, we're like 16. Like we don't know how to deal with these things, especially her. So I put all that on her. Obviously I got rejected and that kind of just spiraled my life that coupled with other stressors and social realizations of myself and regret and shame and all of these things that I lived my life up to that point. It just kind of all piled on me at once. And then I was just completely broken, completely depressed, completely miserable, had no motivation to get out of bed, no, no drive, no will to do anything. Um, I had gotten the phone with a psychiatrist diagnosed. Uh, we'll get into that later. Anxiety was put on a couple of medications. Those did not work. Uh, again, I have my own theories on all those things. Uh, those did not work. They were just masking symptoms kind of. And then eventually I called the primary care physician back and basically was just telling him like, Hey, these, these like feelings of uh, um, self-loathing and even attempts of self-harm or taking my own life are, are escalating. Uh, I don't know what to do. I don't feel safe. So I was, and en I ended up enrolling into a uh, psychiatric institution for a little while. And that unfortunately did not work either. Again, I had my own distastes with that whole field, to be honest. And uh, I eventually got out and um, had to put myself together, basically. I had to lie my way out and um, pretty much look at my life, like look at myself in the mirror, give me a real, really hard look for the first time I, I, I ever have done. Because like I mentioned before, I was always indulged in escapism. So if this was the first time in my life after that psychiatric institution where I actually looked at myself and I said, okay, what's wrong with me? Like, what's going on? Why? Like, yes, I'll acknowledge I feel these things. Why do I feel these things? What did I knowingly contribute? to this, how did I knowingly or involuntarily contribute to this end result? And then I had to take a lot of accountability. And that was a, probably the, one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life to this day. Uh, and it was just a gradual process. And I mean, it's been a consistent, positive uphill staircase climb, uh, essentially since then for, for a good portion of 10 years now. How old were you when you started uh, realizing and doing the self-work to discover your self-truths? I had to be 17. Yeah, 17. Very early yep. to like hit that milestone. I mean, I was I was kind of forced to. Um, there, there's a there's a poetry book called Letters to a Young Poet by, by Rainer Marie Rilke. Uh, and in it, one of my favorite quotes, it says, a work of art can be deemed valuable if it has arisen out of necessity. Uh, Nietzsche has a similar 
notion with strength. He says the first principle of strength is one must need to become strong. Otherwise, one will never become strong. So essentially, it was quite literally life or death. Like I did not have an option. And I think that like when you get to absolute rock bottom, uh, that is a beautiful, beautiful place. I mean, it's kind of paradoxical, but that is a beautiful place to be. Uh, if you have a vestige of hope, as long as you're like optimistic and you know, like, okay, it cannot get worse than this. Like that's how, it's actually a positive realization. Like that's a positive milestone for you to hit. Uh, because I've gone in my life, like several, like mini rebirths. Like I've had like a very, very low period in like middle school. And I kind of put like a mask on and it, it, like indulging the escapism. But on the surface, I was better. I was talking to people. I was hanging out. I was a little bit more social. It seemed like an uphill, but in reality, I hadn't done no inner work. So I, I didn't actually hit rock bottom basically. Um, so yeah, and then that was middle school. And then yeah, about, about 16, 17 was when like all of that chaos just completely, I was, I got immersed in it. Um, I, I like that you mentioned that because often we will see people in our lives that we care about and they might be suffering mentally with anxiety or depression or mm -hmm. self-harm. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's like, we can't even see it. We can't even tell. Right. Well, can you tell us what male depression looks like in some ways it could be hiding? Very good question. Uh, so it definitely is idiosyncratic. Um, obviously, you know, there are like traditional, uh, you know, traditionally exhibited signs, you can say, uh, lack of desire to do typical everyday things, lack of interest in things. Like if your friend want, what, what used to be the type of guy who always would go out with you guys and you just like always staying home a lot more frequent, it could be something as simple as that. It could be like outwardly them speaking up and saying they're not okay. Or, I mean, like I mentioned, a good, a good prerequisite to look out for, especially with men is like a recent serious relationship issue, like a divorce, a breakup, a, a really, really hard rejection. Like if they've been trying to date and it's just failure after failure, those men are especially susceptible. Um, I just put a post up on my Instagram the other day, a recent breakup or divorce actually quadruples the, the, uh, rate of male suicide, which is extremely interesting. Um, and it was not the same in women. Like it, it was, it was not the same. I think up to, if I'm not mistaken, I don't know, I have a study off, off top of my head, but I think it's like around 32% of male suicides were experiencing incident partner problems. So it's a, it's a significantly driving factor, especially in all, a lot of the men that I talk to, especially myself as well. So that can definitely be one thing to look out for um, and always check in with those guys, even if, you know, myself included, I can kind of be stubborn. I definitely was at that time, too. If anybody did ask me, I would just uh, like be really dismissive and say everything is fine. But um, kind of be especially adamant with that if, if there's like a relationship issue going on, uh, lack of motivation to do everyday things, as I mentioned. Um, just not taking care of themselves, falling off on usual routines that they, that they, that they used to do. Like if they had a passion, if they had an interest of, I don't know, maybe they played soccer with you every week, or they did something like a creative, uh, outlet, like they just went painting or drawing or something. And they just kind of drop all those like passion projects, uh, gradually, if they stop, you know, working on themselves, they stop improving themselves, uh, just kind of any anomalous behavior. I, I would say, I, I would definitely check in with somebody on that. Um, and I mean, realize that yes, there's going to be some resistance at first, because I mean, that's kind of how we are. Like, um, I'm going to generalize, obviously, but as men, we tend to just be really, really solution oriented. And sometimes these emotions are not really always subject to reason, you know, they're just kind of anomalous, or they're just, uh, there's factors beyond our comprehension, or factors that have been residual effects for the course of half of our lives that just end up piling on us, we can't really logically connect the dots. So we might not actually know, but we know we feel we, we know, 
at least emotionally, something is anomalous and something is off the usual trajectory. So, um, yeah, I mean, those are some some basic things to 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 be aware of. I I'm really grateful to speak to you, being that I'm a woman, like mm. being able to hear a male's perspective on this, because from my mm. personal relationships, I've seen similar patterns and yeah. I've always found it difficult as a friend and a girlfriend to find helpful ways to be supportive because mm-hmm. on the outside, it's very easy to judge and say, you're not motivated. You're not ambitious. Right. You're trying hard on them. But that is, that breaks somebody's spirit down, especially if they don't feel right. They feel alien to themselves. So how can we be good partners or how can we be supportive friends if it's hard for our, the, our, the subject, like the person that we're, we want to help to talk about it because they're so used to suppressing their feelings? It's a really good question. Um, I would say, again, this is idiosyncratic, um, but one thing that could lead to a very, very powerful uh, self-image change uh, and subsequent change in, in psychological motivation and behaviors uh, is just simply the act of like encouraging someone or praising something that you do like about them. Um, I don't think men get enough of that. And I mean, you always see like jokes and like memes about like men talking about like, oh, I got my yearly compliments today. like. It's kind of a funny thing we joke about, but it's it's like, that's dead serious. Like, that's really a thing. Like, I cannot remember. I mean, I can't remember the, the, the very minuscule amounts of compliments that I do get because they're so infrequent for men. Um, and I mean, I, I think that is definitely one thing to do, just encourage them. And I would also, I would also place emphasis on encouraging, encouraging things that point to their behavior. So instead of encouraging them for for like a title, like, oh, you are this or something, saying, I'm proud of you for the effort that you put in to get that. Or like, hey, I'm proud of the way you you creatively solved that problem. Hey, I'm proud of the way that like you were dealing with that stress, but you kind of kept your cool and you like you handled the shit that you needed to handle. Like, I respect you as a man more for that. And it's like that that will penetrate a lot deeper than just superficial stuff or just, you know, transactional compliments and stuff. Um, so I think that can be one way of definitely, uh, doing that. Obviously there has to be a lot of trust, you know, we're not just going to tend to open up to, to anybody we don't trust. I mean, men and women, obviously, but, um, that is one thing. And I was listening to a podcast. I'm blanking on exactly where it was, but they were talking about the differences between men and women, um, and, and their friendships. And I think it was interesting that men have a hard time and he actually attributed this to evolution and stuff, but men have a hard time just like, just straight, like shoulder to shoulder, just straight up talking like about what's going wrong. It's very uncomfortable. And actually like there's been studies and reports. A lot of men are like therapy is very, not very therapy can be very ineffective for a lot of men because of that issue. It's like, you're closed off, which I can attest to this when people would kind of drill me with questions, just very, very intimate staring at me in the eyes. And I'm like, fuck you. I don't know you. Why would I tell? I don't, I don't know you get it. Like, I don't trust you. I don't know who you are. Um, so backing up, going back to this podcast, he was talking about the differences. Women have a very natural time doing that. Like they'll hang out and they'll say, you know, Hey, this is what's going on with me and my partner. And this is what's going on. This is what, this is what's upsetting me. Can you console me a little bit? Can you give me some advice, et cetera? Men on the other hand, will only kind of, um, will only kind of accomplish that if there's like a shared task. So, and it was funny, this podcast, I'm, again, I'm blanking on the exact name, 
um, this podcaster thought of, of an example and he was like, hey, if I text my friend and say, hey, you want to meet up, the, the guy friend's going to be like, meet up for what? But if he says, hey, you want to meet up and, and watch the game or, hey, you want to meet up and go play basketball? He's like, yeah, cool. I'll play basketball. And it's like watching the game and basketball. That's a proxy. It's like an instrument to actually get together. And like, then we'll talk about serious stuff like, hey, how's your dating? How's your doing? Like, and I, I kind of actually relate to that. Like, I don't I mean, I have a lot of male friends and we'll talk about serious stuff like dating and, and serious stuff like what's going on with their emotional uh, health and all these things. But I'm not going to lie. It's usually around something like that. So if instead of just encouraging a man directly, like probing him, Hey, tell me about your breakup. Like it's good. Any guy's gonna be very reluctant to open up like that. But if you just like get him to do something with you and then have him open up gradually from that. And it's like, even the body language is completely different. It's not as confrontational. You guys are both facing something instead of facing each other. Um, and he'll be a lot more, uh, um, I guess, malleable with that and a lot more pliant to, to comply with, with, you know, your requests and all these things. That kind of reminds me of this therapy. Um, I don't know if it's REM or RDR or something like that, but it's rapid eye movement and mm -hmm. where they found out that like if the eyes are moving back and forth, you can, you have the ability of revisiting a traumatic experience without having the the overwhelming feeling of anxiety and you can revisit yeah these movies and it's been proven in studies to be extremely helpful for people experiencing trauma and mm -hmm. what what reminds me about what you suggested which i love your advice and it makes complete sense to me is when you know you said like in our society like men weren't raised to really be comfortable with being vulnerable because of, there's so much judgment towards being men. there's so many expectations mm -hmm. And like to be a provider, mm. to have a good job, to be strong. There's just too many. And granted, women have them too. Mm. We're gonna, I'm going to focus on the men today. And um, I guess like the idea of like doing something physical could like kind of get their minds, like their bodies from fully experiencing the emotion they may be reliving. Um, so it kind of, it makes sense to me why people or men would be more comfortable expressing their emotions if they're in action because you know there's like a physical exertion that's mm -hmm. kind of like splitting it from being very like overwhelming yeah i really like that yeah i'm super curious what kind of miracles have you witnessed with clients with development during your career since you've been coaching it's mm. a good question um I think the the if I had to generalize and look at like patterns, I would say that overcome like for me at least, and, and this is probably I'm probably biased because it was such a um, determining factor in like my my mental health, my journey. Um, so I'm probably biased to like over over like estimate the the importance of this, but I do still think objectively it is significant. Um, placing less reliance and less like emphasis on external validation. So as I mentioned, a, a very common pattern with men is, you know, not having a lot of, uh, uh, not having a sense of self-worth, not having, not having a lot of confidence, not having that internal validation from whatever reasons. Um, and then we, we seek it outside. So we'll seek it in our partner. We'll seek it in our dating prospects. We'll seek it in women. We'll seek it in friendships, et cetera. And the, the issue with that is, like I said, once you get rejected or once you, even by the way, even if you get praise for that, um, it's not actually, it doesn't actually penetrate your psyche because what's happening is, as I mentioned, if I'm being 
the nice guy, if I'm being inauthentic, that means I'm acting. That means I'm playing a role, right? So I'm connected to that role a little bit. I'm tethered to it because maybe it's like 30% me, 70% fabricated, contrived image, right? So even if like she becomes to love that role, I only get 30% of that love. You see what I'm saying? I'm kind of tethered to it. So I don't actually get the whole, like there, there's a proxy, there's a barrier between us. So there's something that it filters through. And I think it's very inauthentic and it's definitely not sustainable. I've, I've engaged in a lot of relationships be, uh, um, like that because fr like, frankly, I was just afraid of abandonment or afraid of rejection or afraid of having someone and losing it. Um, so the biggest most important change I, I've seen is that it's like placing more emphasis on, uh, you know, your own validation, actually getting some self-confidence, actually getting your self-esteem up. That way you're not so desperate for approval. That way you're not so desperate for attention. That way you're not bending yourself over backwards just to get a crumb of encouragement or a crumb of validation or a crumb of, of, Hey, look at me. Um, so that's, that's been definitely the, the, uh, the, the most like, I would say most impactful thing because that's going to completely transform the way uh, someone goes about their, their, their personal development journey and even their life. Um, one story I have in particular is, and I'll keep this really short. Um, one guy I was talking to, he, he was young. He was like 22, 23. He was saving up and he wanted to, uh, he was talking to this girl at the time and he wanted to build a life with this girl. Right. So he was really, really excited about it. He was, you know, they were dating for a couple of years he was very invested. He was very forward with everything. He thought it was like really healthy. He was communicating, hey, like I want to, I, I want to uh, eventually like build a life with you. I want to have kids. I want to move in together, do all these things. Um, and like, I don't remember, I don't remember the, the exact details, but there was some anomalous instance where the um, her, his partner had moved away. I think it was for school or something like this. Uh, so it was like a couple states away. He could still drive every other weekend or something like that over to her which he was doing, but he wanted to surprise her with, with his proposal. So what he did is he saved up a bunch of money, sold a bunch of his things. And basically his plan was to go over to her state, propose to her and get basically live together, like have an apartment together. So he, he basically gets a lot of his things. Um, he like basically prepares his life, like uproots a lot of his things in his, in his home state so he can go over. And I don't know if it was like attachment issues on his or her behalf, but basically he, he like proposes all of these things to her and she just kind of shut it down. Like, I don't remember exactly the reason. Again, it, I, I didn't really ask like small details with her. I don't really know the, the like the, the specific context, but obviously this broke him. So what he had to end up doing was basically he was like in this weird state of like limbo where he had placed so much expectation on like his mental health and his um his his just reliance on on feeling worthy in his partner's hands which don't get me wrong you can absolutely have a deeply impactful connection with someone but you shouldn't be codependent i would say um he had placed so much emphasis on that and it was broken and, and when he didn't meet that expectation his his life was just shattered like shattered i felt so bad for this kid because he he kind of like not really burned bridges, so to speak, but like he he made it so he's not going to go back to his hometown. He ended up dr like living out of his car, uh, going in the in like he had to drive back to his home state, living out of his car so he can see a uh, primary care physician. He got he got on therapy, he got on medication for for antidepressants and all these things, and he went to uh, therapy for like the relationship stuff, and it's completely shattered his life. He ends up taking like the money that he saved up and the things um, that he he bought 
for his girlfriend, returning all these things and ends up putting that money basically into his future life. Like he gets an apartment for himself uh, and he goes and invests in all these things and he starts buying books, starts buying like coaching, starts buying programs, starts investing in his development. Um, and I think that was like a very, very significant change to see that he actually, instead of being kind of codependent, he, he learned like to have self-reliance and he can now date in a healthy way. And that's not to say like, I think there's two ways, there's two responses a man can have to a breakup like that or, or, or a divorce or a rejection, whatever. Um, and this is why I personally focused on like this niche of men, which is like men who are in post heartbreak depression, because it's very volatile. You can go one of two ways. And it's usually only those two ways. One way is like the healthy way. So it's like what I always encourage and what I eventually, uh, eventually um, in a roundabout way got to myself, which is like do the developmental work on yourself have some, have a little bit of accountability. Um, yes, like grieve, have those emotions, but like realize it's going to get better. Realize, put some work in, you're going to grow from the experience. Eventually you'll actually be thankful for that heartbreak because it changed you. It taught you a lot of things about, about love, about, um, connection, about relationships, about yourself, about life, et cetera. So you grow from these things. You, you, you don't get bitter. You don't get resentful. You heal in, in a, in a holistic way from it. That's kind of more rare. I'm not going to lie to you. The easier way, the more convenient route is the escapism is like the some of the like the toxic like red pill things about like um oh fuck her forget her whatever i'm gonna just be a player i'm gonna just go get as many girls as i can and i'm gonna get really in good shape just to make her jealous i'm gonna you know oh this will show her oh i'm gonna get in really good shape so none of these girls can ever touch me i'm done dating forever uh it's a very very it's like do grow up like it's really childish it's just really played out uh i'm not gonna lie like i've i've lived through that in my early 20s um, and it's just, it's just corny to me. Like, it's just, it's just so indicative. I look at it now. It's so indicative of like a complete lack of emotional awareness, uh, complete lack of attachment patterns, complete lack of accountability. You're placing all of the blame outside you. Um, these are the type of men who say, oh, all women are blank. All women are gold diggers. All women are out to use you. All women are going to just going to leave you for the next man with more money. Like they make very generalized statements like this out of resentment, out of, uh, they, they internalize the rejection. They didn't process it. They took something really, really personal and they lash out on the world. They lash out at women. They lash out on their partners. And people like that are just miserable. It's not really sustainable. And I mean, hopefully they, they come around to, to the more holistic, healthy approach of, you know, accountability, of EQ, of developing themselves, of looking at their attachment patterns, of looking at where they are wrong in relationships. Um, and, you know, I, like I said, I think it's a, it's a really, it's a, it's a, it's a really stark polarity. Like I've definitely seen only those two options, basically, in, in young men, especially. Personally, what you what you said about um, the type two, I've heard mm. that verbatim from my guy friends. Like it's like copy and paste. So mm. I've definitely seen that. And honestly, I could relate personally to some of those. Mm. I react to things too. Mm. I wanted to ask for those who don't know what EQ is. Can you explain how that plays a role into this? Yeah, so EQ is just emotional intelligence, uh, and it is something that is is not static. Like IQ is relatively static. There's not much you can do to, to to make changes to that. But EQ is very dynamic. It's very valuable. You could definitely make changes, and it's basically just. Uh, I'm still like doing a lot of research on this myself because it is one, um, I guess, area and facet of my life that I have traditionally go it has traditionally gone neglected in my early you know adult life and stuff like that. So. Um, it's just emotional intelligence, empathy, active listening, understanding the ability to uh, handle conflict and argue in a healthy, 
productive, like constructive way. Um, deal with accountability, have hard conversations with people, have uncomfortable, vulnerable moments with your partner, uh, have these important conversations that need to be had instead of making assumptions about someone. Um, and I mean, it could be uncomfortable, sure, but I think it's better than the alternative of, of you know, investing into a relationship that's inauthentic and both of you guys are just making assumptions and then you guys, you just slip into, you know, comfort, comfort, comfort mode. And then you get to the next, you know, crossroads. You're like, Hey, you want to move in together? And he's like, Oh no, I didn't even think this was that serious. And it's like the whole time one person was pouring into the whole thing. and thought it was going to be like a life partner. And then the other person was just like, Oh, this is just a waste of my time. You know? So it's like these things like that hurt a lot more than the uncomfortable conversation that you could have in the first you know couple of weeks of dating. Um, but I would say EQ evolves around that stuff. Um, and, uh, I think it's really important and neglected in men, especially just in Western civilization. It's not really like uh, EQ is a part of self-regulation. I noticed that Mm -hmm. uh, the technology and all the dopamine that we have at our fingertips, Mm -hmm. instant gratification that, um, emotional intelligence is, you know, is not a topic that is focused on, but we always focus on like in school, if we could memorize tests and, you know, provide proof to our employers that we can be good workers. On the contrary, a lot of people don't know that people with high EQ end up making more money and end up having better relationships and get promoted faster because it's not about what we can do, but how we can collaborate with one another. So, Anybody who is yeah. you, I definitely recommend you follow John and I recommend you looking into some really good books about it. Um, I am by no means an EQ expert. <laughs> I'm still working on it myself, but I will definitely share any tips um, in the future that I do have on it. You know, I think, and that's kind of how I use my Instagram. It's like, I'm, I'm not, I haven't arrived anywhere. You know, I'm not done. I'm always working on myself. And that's kind of what I chose to do with, uh, you know, the, the, the social media platforms and the business of Xeno Theory is kind of use my life as an example, you know, and I always just go through stuff that I'm, I'm actively sharing. And I try to be open and vulnerable and honest with, with, with everybody and definitely not perfect. I definitely have a lot of stuff I need to work on myself. But I think it's just uh, I always try to use myself as an example for encouragement. I wanted to ask for the men who are listening to this right now and they find themselves as a type two guy and this might be very shocking for them. Well, can you give them some advice on how they can approach their behaviors and their, their generalizations? Because when that's like a thick mm. neural pathway in our heads and that's like a huge pattern, it'd be yeah. very challenging to start working. Yeah. With. Yeah, definitely. Uh, one thing I have, one piece of advice I have, which is something I've internalized, probably from just reading a bunch of self-help books and stuff like this. It's just basic accountability and an exercise to do this is I actually made a reel about this a couple, probably a couple of weeks or maybe a month ago or something like that. And I and I asked people, I said, do you want to develop your character or do you do want do you want to develop your ego? So developing your ego would just say, I'm always right about everything, right? So this is the guy, you know, the type two person who says, Oh, you know, I'm perfect. It's it's it, let's say the relationship fails or like something, something happens. Oh, it's all her fault. She's toxic. She's crazy. Oh, bitches ain't shit. Oh, whatever. Like you're blaming the other person. Oh, all women are like this. Oh, she, I knew she was always manipulative. I knew I should have never overlooked those red flags. I knew she was crazy. I knew it was too good to be true. These are all basically displacing accountability on the other person. 
So it's just like, you're taking no accountability. So even if, and let's even give that person the benefit of the doubt, let's assume they were perfectly healthy, which is a lie, obviously. Let's assume that guy was perfectly healthy. He's normal. He's neutral. He didn't do anything wrong. And he actually did run into a crazy person because crazy people are out there, obviously. Like there is manipulators. There are liars. There are people who, who, who use people. Obviously, these people exist. So let's assume for sake of example, he does run into a person like that who's just this pure force of manifested like evil and manipulation. Why would he even deal with that? In the first place, why wouldn't he have accountability and say, okay, that's a red flag. I'm going to avoid that. Like that, I'm, I'm not even attracted to that. That's crazy because inherently you attract kind of what you are. I know it's a very overused maxim, um, but you're attracted to people that kind of reflect your level of development, right? So it's like, if you're going to go on a date with someone and they're, they're, they're really, really uh, emotionally intelligent or they're, they, maybe they have a really secure attachment style and it's not what you're used to, by the way, I've been diving into attachment styles and um, avoidance and anxious types tend to always date each other. It's very toxic. It's very messy, but it is very addicting and it's very comfortable. It's very familiar for them. So that's usually what they do. And when they do meet a secure person, it's just like this whole different dynamic. And it's just, it's super uncomfortable uh, for them if they don't want to grow, by the way. If they want comfort, they'll they'll shoot the toxic person because it's fun, because it's familiar, because it's it's a challenge, because it's a game or some some weird reason. But anyways, going back to the example of this guy, um, even if he runs into this this girl who's crazy, right? Why wouldn't he run? Why would he deal with that? You know. So, I think the obvious answer is just what I do is try to develop the character rather than the ego. So the first example of displacing the, the, the blame, that's only developing the ego. Okay, you're right. Okay, cool. You got nothing out of that. And guess what? You're going to end up attracting the same exact person in a different body, in a different face. And you're going to replay that same exact dynamic until you learn your lesson, until you pay attention and realize you attract what you are. Everything in your life happens for you. You should pay attention. You should extract the lesson and you can move up, move forward in life instead of just regressing or saying the same, right? So person B, let's say a guy runs into a person like that. And even if, even if, like I said, he runs through a girl who's completely crazy, he can look at himself and say, okay, what did I do wrong? And like, that's a hard question to ask because even assuming if he didn't, even if he asks that question, the mind is going to fill in the blank. That's how the mind works. It doesn't like, un it doesn't like open loops. I call them when you, when you give it like a, a prompt, it needs to answer it. Like that's just how it works. So, and I've used an example on this on my Instagram before. If I give you a prompt of, hey, give me three reasons why today is, uh, I don't know, the greatest day of the week. Give me three things that happened today that are like, they, they, they made you extremely happy. And, and we might take a little bit of time to think, but your brain is going to fill in those gaps, right? So if you ask yourself this question, hey, what did I do wrong? Or what could I learn from this dynamic? Again, it, it might not be objectively true. You could be conflating it. You could be misinterpreting it. But end of the day, a person who does that ends up in their next relationship with more insight, with more development, with more accountability, with a more healthy, secure base of emotional connection, with, a, with hopefully a more healthy attachment style, with hopefully more EQ, with hopefully more consideration, com, uh, consideration, empathy, care, all of these things. So I think it's a, it's, a, it's a really good exercise to do. Again, even if it's like objectively, even if other people, you get feedback and they say, oh yeah, she's just crazy. It's a really dismissive thing to do. And it's really disingenuous. And even if it's objectively true, it's not helping you. You know, you're just going to end up with the next crazy girl and you're just going to say the same thing. Oh, she's crazy too. And then at some point you have to look at the statistical probability that all of the girls that you date are crazy and you're healthy. This is foolish. Like at some point you have to be real with yourself and say, okay, it can't be all of the women. 
because who's the only variable? What's the only variable in the, all of these equations? It's you. It's you. You're present in all of those things. And all you're telling me all your relationships end up with the girl leaving you or cheating on you or using you. It's like, okay, I would understand one anomalous instance. Again, maybe you ran into one crazy person. They are out there. But the next one, the next one, the next one, the next one, and the next one, they all look like the, the same childhood dating pattern that you had since you were 16. And it's all the women. That's ridiculous. That is ridiculous. So at some point, you have to have accountability. And I would argue immediately after any dynamic, any relationship, you ask yourself that question, you'll grow from it regardless of it, if it's true or false. That's such a good method and practice because you also take back control when you ask yourself mm-hmm. you take accountability. And, it, and at face value, it seems scary to take accountability because we assume that guilt and shame will be involved. However, when we're mm-hmm. authentic with ourselves, it's actually very healing. And we feel like we yeah. have all over this, at least a fraction of the situation, which can really be, you know, something that prevents someone from losing hope and maybe letting, letting their bodies stay in bed all day, like letting, yeah. like letting go of the integrity that they have. I'm really grateful for this. Yeah. Why do you think suicide and depression is so common among males instead of females? I would love to hear a little bit about your theory. Hmm. I mean, one thing is definitely what we spoke on a little bit earlier about like, there's not really that sense of, uh, you know, support for them. It doesn't really seem to be that present. And I think conventional methods, um, and I could be biased, obviously, from my experience, but conventional methods were definitely not effective at all for me. Uh, if anything, it was a little bit more condescending. And I, I arguably felt worse when I was in the psychiatric institution because I felt like felt ridiculed. I felt dehumanized. I felt stupid. Like it made me feel incompetent. There's a lot of like negative attributes I, I associated with like their their approach, I guess. Um, so, I mean, one could be like the, the general discussion around treatment and the, and the efficaciousness of the, the methods out there. Um, two could be what we, what we spoke about. It's kind of difficult and uncomfortable for, for men. And I mean, it's just kind of not natural for them to just, uh, besides with their partner, just have like a, a just square shoulder, just looking straight at somebody, Hey, like this is what's upsetting me. Like it's really just not natural for us. So I think we can kind of circumvent that by using the example that I use about like do an activity with them. Like, Hey, let's go do something. And like, then we'll talk about stuff and that'll get them to open up. Um, but I think another thing is is what a uh, theme I, I reference, which is like the validation from women thing. You know, there, there's increasing statistics that show, and there's a lot of reasons behind this. I think social media is definitely one. Dating apps is definitely another uh, that increasingly show that like less and less and less men are basically finding partners. Um, like there's an increasing significance, statistical significance of basically the the Pareto principle, which is the 80-20 rule which is basically, if you think about it, this is kind of crazy to think about. I don't know if it's like verifiably true, but the theory is along the line. The theory is that it applies to dating as well. And it's basically saying that 20% of men basically date uh, 80% of women. Now, granted, again, that doesn't mean each guy has, what, six girlfriends? You know what I mean? It's not exactly what it means, but it could mean like access to. Like, you know what I mean? Like I could, like someone could a guy could date this girl versus a guy on like the bottom, whatever that means, whether it's like social intelligence or money or looks or whatever the bottom would constitute based on the metric. Uh, they don't have access to like as many options. And again, the, it makes sense when you look at it in, in terms of like social media and, 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 so, and uh, dating apps, because if a girl can look at, at, you know, let's look at before dating apps, right? 
dating pools are usually what your city, maybe your town, maybe if you go to a town on weekends or something, maybe it expands a little bit. It's kind of, kind of it, like maybe from your school, your college, mutual friends, friends of friends. It's kind of basically people you run into on a daily basis. It's kind of it. Um, social media, dating apps, you can set your location anywhere. You can talk to thousands of people across the world at any time. So you can have those connections. So basically increasingly, uh, and I mean, it makes sense from, from anybody's perspective. If a girl makes a dating profile, she can have access to look at different men uh, from literally all around the world, wherever she puts her marker. And then when you do that, I have my own theories about dating apps, but when you do that, you're kind of reducing people to the facets that you're judging them off of, whether it's just looks, whether it's just status, whether it's whatever they present, right? You're, you're kind of boxing them in and you're not really giving them an actual chance. Um, and then you can increasingly get more, and I've even noticed this in myself, in my experience, you increasingly get more and more and more and more picky when you use these apps because you see thousands of people and you're like, okay, this is overwhelming. This has never been a, a reality in human evolution. We've only had, always had kind of a limited set. So now that we have unlimited, it's like, oh my God, I, I have to filter out. So like, okay, now these 60% of people are just out of the equation. These other 30, I'm not really feeling them either. I just want the best of the best of what exactly what I'm attracted to. And even then you can still see hundreds of options. So it kind of makes sense. Like in that, with that framework that the, that there's an increasingly, I guess, increasingly lower percentage of men that are finding mates. So that can definitely contribute, obviously, to, to depression, anxiety, suicide, all of these things. Uh, as I mentioned before, female uh, female women, attention, validation, affection, all these things. Um, I think it's a bigger deal with males and females, uh, the men and women. Um, it's a very significantly influential factor in our self-esteem, in our confidence, as much as some guys don't want to admit it. Um, which is why, by the way, I've been meaning to do like some some content, maybe some reels and stuff on this topic, which is why if you ever like pay attention to ads like on TV or, or YouTube or anything, any ads that are marketing men's products, it usually has an aspect of validation from women. And it's like the stupidest product. Like think of like shaving cream or soap or deodorant or cologne. It's like, oh, they'll use a girl who says like, I'd be all over my man if he smelled like this. And then our stupid, like primate brains are like, oh, like sexual selection. Oh, we're going to be desirable to women. Oh, I need that product. Like that's, that's probably what the, what the advertisers want. And you look at it the other way. I don't really see the equivalent for, for, for targets, uh, for products and services targeted to women. It's not like, oh, like a guy, like they don't, they don't, they don't really care. Like it's, it's, it's not really present. I haven't really seen that, but it's all over the place in products and services at, like aimed at men. It's, it's usually a proxy, an intermediary agent to get approval from women. That's exactly, that's usually what it is. It, it's not even about the soap. It's not about the shaving cream. It's buy this and then you'll get the approval of women. But the approval from women, the sexual selection, if you will, is actually what we're after. And I think it's a really interesting uh, um, dynamic there. It doesn't seem to be, it seems to be very opposite. Yeah, that's very thought provoking because we look at the past and how marriage used to be and mm-hmm. how women had a position in the house like and like a couple hundred years ago, maybe even just 100 years ago, like women really didn't have any rights. Like we were the property of the husband. So it was like we had to find a man. So it's crazy to see yeah. the table yeah, yeah. where we're not yeah. being marketed that dream anymore, but we're being marketed yeah. like being being more masculine, like the feminine masculine, like women mm. Or independent, self-sufficient, but then also mm-hmm. like finding a newfound confidence and way of behaving, and then we yeah. see that in the current advertisements. So when you brought that up, it just really like blew my mind because 
I did not make that observation. So I find that very interesting as well. Yeah. I've definitely noticed it for a couple of years. Yeah. From what I was told from some of my male friends that suffered through some of the things you mentioned, depression can feel like inner vacancy. For our matrix members that feel this way, how can they feel the fill the void if they're already like in there and they already now now that like you said the signs like what if they have like these symptoms like mm-hmm. what do you suggest mm-hmm. to do next? Yeah, so this is a great question, and again, I'll preface it that it's idiosyncratic. There's no like exact formula to do to, to pay attention to, but um, I, I recently made a reel and, and I was talking about uh, my you know experience with my diagnosis of major depressive disorder and anxiety, and. I, I included in the caption that when I went to speak to the psychiatrist, the mental health professional, the, the therapist, all these people, they, unfortunately, I, I really hope the industry changed. But at this time, this was back in 2012, 2011. At this time, they asked me nothing about anything going on in my life, any factors, any influential factors. And I mentioned in the caption that, uh, you know, I was broke. I had no friends. I had I wasn't dating anybody. I was extremely lonely. I had no goals. I was unemployed. I had nothing to do with my time. I had no passions. I wasn't spending my time in anything productive. I was indulging in escapism, smoking, drinking, playing video games. I had no direction. I wasn't healthy. I had no mentors. I had no constructive input. I wasn't reading. I was only watching shows and listening to people gossip all day. It's like, yeah, no shit. You're going to feel like garbage if, if that's your lifestyle. Like, obviously. So, what I decided to do was after that psychiatric institution, I literally made a list. And this is actually something I have, I have all my clients do that I work with. I basically made a list and I'm like looking at my life and I'm like, all right, let me list out. Like it's so I dump out my, my head on paper, every single thing that's bothering me. It could be something really small. It could be something really big, but like everything, let me just get it out on paper. And then let me like go through it and be like, how can I fix this? Like, how can I think creatively to fix this? And like, granted, you might not have extreme motivation. You might not have like the knowledge to do these things, but like, it's a start. It's an absolute start. Uh, And then I honestly began to work on those things in my life one by one. And I made very, very small changes at first. Um, Instead of, you know, watching Netflix and, and whatever people were talking about movies and stuff, I would try to like educate myself on something, uh, whether it's a TED talk, whether it's a YouTube documentary or just something really small like that. I started to eat a little bit healthier. I started to go to the gym. I started to stop um, entertaining these people that go to parties and drink and smoke every weekend. I would just not really be interested in that stuff anymore. I would kind of isolate myself, at least this time voluntarily isolate myself. Um, so these are all things that, that I think really, really helped me, like making these small changes. Uh, and I'm actually going to reference a, a book uh, that, that I think if anybody's like experiencing these things right now, uh, there's a book by Johan Hari, J-O-H-A-N-N, Hari. He was on uh, a bunch of different podcasts. I actually found him from Joe Rogan podcast. And he did a, um, he basically wrote a book, traveling the world, um, talking to a bunch of therapists, psychiatrists, mental health professionals, et cetera, basically talking about the causes and the, and the, the ways you can alleviate the symptoms of depression. And the causes that he found, and again, this is a very, very valid study. He talked to thousands and thousands of people. Um, and these ironically mirror like the, some, the things that I listed off that like the issues that I had. So he lists, uh, and these are generalizing, that people who are depressed uh, have a disconnection from a couple of things or all of them. Meaningful work, a disconnection from other people, a disconnection from meaningful values, a disconnection from childhood trauma, a disconnection from status and respect, or a disconnection from the natural world. So these are definitely things you can kind of include in that list of like, hey, what's wrong with my life? Like, I don't have these things. You can read that book, you can go through it, and you can just 
like polarizing. Like think of the opposite. Okay. I'm disconnected from other people. What could I do? I can find some interest that I'm interested in. Maybe it's photography, maybe it's cars, maybe it's fashion, whatever you're interested in. Maybe go to some discussion centered around this. Maybe find some apps that meet people that are centered around that. Even if it's virtual, even if it's online, let me just talk to some people, whatever it happens to be. Uh, and then just do these things one by one. It's maybe not, it's maybe it, maybe it won't happen overnight, but like set yourself some promises that like, hey, I'm just gonna at least give this like a week of, of trying to like my absolute hardest at this list and seeing if anything changes. And maybe I'll rewrite the list next week, see if the list gets smaller and then see if it gets smaller. And obviously you're always gonna have problems in life, but like it, the, the problems are gonna change. So you might add some more to the list, but you might have more confidence because of the dopamine release when you actually complete these things and give yourself a surge of self-confidence and self-esteem and a sense of accomplishment and status and respect from completing these things. And you'll actually have more faith in yourself and you'll look at these things and you'll actually get excited in a weird way because you're like, okay, this is now a game. It's fun. Like I'm actually quantifying my growth in my life because I can see myself getting better week by week, month by month, year by year. And then, yeah, I mean, before you know it, you look back and you're completely unrecognizable. And I mean, this is exactly what happened to me. Um, after I got to the psychiatric institution, I literally, I did this exact exercise. I wrote down a list. Um, and then I also built an example of like the person that I did want to become. So it was two lists, basically. It was like one, like everything wrong with me two like the ideal version of myself, like me, that's most happy, most successful, most healthy, all these things. And I try to describe it in really good detail. Uh, so I had, a, I had basically something to aim for and I could just ask myself, Hey, am I closer to this person or am I not? Am I further away? Okay. Fix my behavior. Let me get closer to this person. How would this person act in everyday scenarios? How would this person introduce himself? What types of activities would this person do? You know what I mean? Is this somebody who's going to go smoke weed at a, at a random college party on a Friday and Saturday night? Probably not. Probably not going to do that. It doesn't really entertain me anymore. You know? So again, it's not really overnight. This took probably uh, a couple of years of really, really focused work for me. Um, at least to, to get to like the, the, the a very very drastic trajectory difference definitely took a couple of years with like my head down just focusing on it but like it's been the most fun phase of my life and i mean it's it's ongoing like it's i'm still immersed in it so it's definitely been extremely rewarding and extremely valuable and extremely meaningful for me that's so empowering and like extremely inspiring and i think i'm gonna try that exercise mm -hmm. yeah yeah awesome um, can you tell us the origin story of Xeno Theory and how you came up with your name? Okay, so that's a good question. Um, so the origin story I kind of alluded to a little bit. I had a very, very bad experience in the psychiatric institution. They were just, I just felt like a zombie, like they were just feeding me medication, telling me to shut up. I mean, they weren't literally telling me to shut up, but like, I, I didn't feel like actually supported there. Like it was just, okay, alleviate your symptoms, just be quiet, behave. And it, I felt really, really restricted. So I'll, very rapidly, after a couple of days there, I actually had to lie to the whoever I spoke to, advisor there, therapist, psychotherapist, I don't know what their titles, but I had to lie to them to say I'm I'm healthy, I'm better, I'm not depressed anymore, just so I can get out of there because it felt like a jail. I felt so constricted in there. Um, I got out. I got off my medication, which people actually advise against because the, the thoughts of suicide can actually increase, which I'm not going to lie, I got to absolute rock bottom after the psychiatric institution because I let go of my safety nets. I always had this safety net of like someone to, to, to uh, vent to or someone, or like in this case, the medication, in this case, the calling my, my psychiatrist, in this case, the institution, whatever it was, but these are all like proxies preventing me from going down. You know what I mean? And it's like, I was just honestly scared, rightfully so, um, from going down a lot further. And I went down, but 
I'm not, it, it was it was a difference. It was voluntarily going down. So I think that is the distinction that made it very, very, um, I guess, useful versus like being forced down you're like, and you're trying, you're, you're desperately drowning, you're trying to go up for air versus like voluntarily swimming to the bottom. And that's what I did. I voluntarily went down and then I just built my life from that. And I was like, okay, like this is the absolute lowest I've ever been in my life. I know it can't get much worse than this. And if it does get worse, I'll die. So it's like, there's really, there's really nothing to lose here. So after that, I, I remember this day uh, when I got out of this psychiatric institution, I was walking and I looked back at the building and something in me, and I mean, this is a long time ago. This is 2011. So this is 11 years ago now. Something in me told me, I'm like, I have to have some role. I don't know why I gave myself this role. I mean, I'm thankful, I'm thankful I did now, but at that time I adopted the responsibility of playing some role in the mental health uh, industry or, or, or some type of corrective framework or some modality or some protocol, right? I had to say, cause I didn't want anybody to go through what I did. Um, not only the mental health stuff, but like the, the, the way to fix it. Like that was the only option that I knew of and it did absolutely nothing for me. So I was completely miserable. I was, I was appalled at that, to be honest. And I adopted that responsibility. I said, I don't really know what I'm doing right now. I don't really know my next step, but at some point in my life, I want to give back to my younger self and like become the person that I would have needed. So if it's like, if I met the 17, 16 year old version of myself right now, I would know exactly, exactly what to do for him. I, I would give him the exact protocol. I would have the exact answers um, for him to get to where I am now, which is, which is, I think, very rewarding and very empowering to have those exact answers. Um, so the, the name uh, of, 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 of everything, Zeno theory, uh, Zeno is actually a it's a prefix and the, the, the word, if you look at it etymologically, it means foreign or different or outsider or from, from a different source. So going back to this example that I just told you about, about making stuff like that, when I wrote down the list of everything that bothered me and I wrote down the list of the person that I wanted to become, for some reason, I named that person Zeno. I, I don't really know why. I just kind of, maybe I just like the sound of it or something like that. It just kind of spoke to me, but I was like, okay. And I like, I like my personal friends, we kind of make jokes about it, but like they say, they'll say like, there's John and there's Zeno. And like, it's like, a, it's not like I'm, I'm not schizophrenic, obviously, but it's like, there's two split kind of personality type of things where I'll look at, and I still do this to this day. Like Zeno is like my higher self. It's like somebody who I'm always trying to emulate. I always have a conscious awareness of. Um, so, I mean, I worked deductively and obviously it just became Zeno theory. Uh, and I mean, it really became an instantiated habit in my life. I redo this every year, this exercise of creating that, that ideal for myself. Um, yeah, I went and got as like a consistent reminder to always strive toward this ideal, to always strive toward a positive direction, to always try to become this person. I went and got uh, Zeno tattooed on my hand, X-E-N-O, as like a consistent reminder of like, okay, through my action, this is always something I'm trying to emulate. This is all, this should be my motivating and guiding decisive force to determine whether a decision is positive or negative or constructive or destructive, whether where I should go at all moments. So it's definitely been and like, this is what, 10, 11 years now in the makings like that I've, that I've consistently had this image in my head and uh, it's responsible for all of my personal development and growth. And I think it's, a, I always, I, I have my, my um, clients do the same thing. Like they create this vision of themselves and a vision of their future and work, work incrementally toward that. And, and that's where all of the, enjoyment is uh shakespeare says things one are done joy's soul lies in the doing more and if you look at this neuro like specifically in terms of neurobiology more dopamine is actually released when you're anticipating something than when you actually complete something 
So looking forward to something when you're actually in the process of unfolding, when you're actually in the process of, you know, attaining and me becoming this future person, that's going to release more dopamine, more, more pleasure, more fulfillment, more pride, more satisfaction than actually becoming it. Because ironically, I can never become it because I update it every year. So it's always ahead of me. So even if I get closer, I'm adding more like uh, requirements to it at the end of the year. So I'm never actually going to get there. I mean, if I, if I work deductively, I can say I'm the Zeno of, of my 18 year old me or something. I could say that. Yeah. But like moving forward, yeah, it's always ahead of me. It's always something to chase. And I think that's, that's like really the, the like secret to, to constant fulfillment is like constant anticipation. You always have to be looking forward to something. And I think that's really something that a lot of people don't have, uh, especially when they're depressed. They're not looking forward to anything. They have nothing to look forward to. And that usually causes, usually is a cause of, of these, these mental states. Oh, that's, I love that. And um, it's super badass you get to be a guide for these guys to get a similar superpower because you you it's like uh, John is who you were born as and then Zeno is like the person you became. It kind of reminds you of He-Man because you're like, you, yeah. I, like, I, I never saw it, but yeah. Yeah, I grew up on that. Like, Okay. <laughs> but I, I, really, I really do like that. And, it's, and it makes life more exciting, yeah. especially... Oh, yeah. Yeah, especially when you have that, you have that power to, to choose who you really are. And I, and that's the core of manifestation. A lot of people get introduced to like the law of attraction and they assume like, if we think enough about something, like it'll happen. But the idea, like the truth is, as soon as we have the image of where we want to be, who we want to be and what we want to experience, we attract things and we also witness and, and, um, we notice opportunity that can bring us closer to that image but it does take that decision and and for the people who are interested in joining your program after hearing your story can you give us a little rundown how it would look like if someone were to enroll yeah so i'm i'm actually really uh picky with like who I choose to work with. I want to be sure it's like, it's a correct fit. Uh, I want to be sure they're actually looking for like a, a definitive, like permanent solution to, to their issues and not just like something temporary or not like these, like I mentioned, these, like the, the type two guys in the earlier example, like, Oh, I'm broken up. Like, I just want to get in really good shape and get really smart. So she's jealous. Like, I'm not going to work with you. Like you need to grow up a little bit mature, like get, get different aims. And then I'm, if you're actually willing to do that, yes, I'll, 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 kind of guide them through that that transformation at least emotionally um but i mean i am really really picky with someone like that but when i do um when, when i do choose, choose to work with people i have them go through you know i have this this online um kind of like a uh methodology and framework where everything is self-guided everything is at your own pace i have them go through it uh and i include six um basically basically coaching sessions with them. So I have an introductory call, basically like not diagnosing, but like determining the issues, determining what's going on, if I can actually help them or not, if working together would be feasible, if it would be a good fit, if it's something that they need. Uh, and then we just move forward with that. And it usually runs over the course of a month or six weeks or so. Obviously, like I said, it's self-directed, self-guided. So people can take as long as two, three, four or five months, as long as they really want. Um, and then they just redeem those, like the, the, the coaching calls whenever they see fit in terms of whatever the intervals that they want to do. And then I always love keeping in touch with the guys as well after, but, um, it is a self-guided kind of like a course framework that I've, I've included like everything that I think th- these men would need from like A to Z. And I'm always, always updating it. As I mentioned, cause I'm always learning about stuff about myself and about life and about whether it's dating or, or attachment patterns or, 
uh, something about philosophy or psychology or whatever, um, I'm always like updating more content material into the course framework. So That's awesome. Sounds like a fantastic program. And I love that it has, um, it's like it's a living program. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So John, I really appreciate your wisdom today. And I got the last, the final three, the rapid fire. Are you ready? Okay. Yeah, yeah. What skill would you like to master? I need to master, I'll combine two, if it's not cheating, uh, active listening and empathy. I'm, I'm notoriously, I've been called not empathetic. I've been called cold. I've been called, called distant. I've been called like too analytical, not emotional enough, especially when I'm listening to people or something. Or It's usually in dating. It's not really with clients or anything. It's usually in dating. Uh, I could be inconsiderate sometimes um of like emotions if i don't see the emotion as uh i guess equivalent to the problem at hand i'm like this doesn't make sense but like to them their emotion is absolutely valid and i need to understand that but like i need to i need i, I do know i have work to do there because i'm just using my own principles my own philosophy and i wouldn't react this way why are you reacting this way and i realize that's kind of selfish and it's kind of inconsiderate but it is something i'm working on yeah I appreciate your transparency. Honestly, like just a side note, um, I, like I'm I'm the emotional ball. Like I have little to no emotional control, but like I have a lot more mindfulness now. So I'm able to like know how to comfort myself when it's like getting hot. Yeah, yeah. But my boyfriend, he's straight up Virgo energy, analytical. Like mm. when I'm emotional, he's like, why are you acting like that? And right. I'm like, you don't get it. I wish I could have your self-control. Right. right. <laughs> so I just, I, I love that. Like I could, I could really see how this like opens up. Because this, these things that you're mentioning just relate to so many people. And I think that's going to be so helpful, like a good tool for people. Yeah. Um, what do you enjoy learning about on your free time? Uh, recently I've been getting a kick out of, uh, attachment patterns. Um, so I've been doing a lot of introspection and self-analysis about my own, um, dating life because I tend to, I, I tend to learn a lot about myself and especially my emotional patterns, uh, through dating. And it's usually not like, I'm usually at, at least my emotional awareness is usually like superficial or something like that until like I'm in a deep connection with someone, I get really, really vulnerable, really connected. And then that I would say my my ability to to have accessible emotions and understanding about myself is so 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 much deeper. It's so, like there's so much more material available to me. I've noticed. I don't know. This is just a me thing. Uh, when I'm in a deep connection uh, with someone in, in a partnership, so I've noticed. I've had a lot of work to do with um, personally an avoidant attachment pattern, which is like somebody who's. I guess summarizing, it's kind of like they're they're not super comfortable with with uh, intimacy or affection or vulnerability or closeness. So it's like when someone gets close, I would kind of just push them away and uh, no, I need to be independent. I need to be, you know, on my own. I need to have my own space, which are all important, all valid claims, but there's better ways to communicate it and kind of work together on those. And um, yeah, I've just been down a rabbit hole in this, in, in that recently. Uh, I've been studying a kind of related phenomenon about um, just this is kind of dating in general. I've been reading a lot about stuff like that. There's a book from a uh, author, Logan Uri. I think that's how you pronounce her last name. I saw her on the, on also on a podcast. It's called how to not die alone. Mm. And she talks a little bit about attachment patterns. Yeah, it's kind of a funny title. She talks a little bit about attachment patterns and uh, how to like, 
uh, pick the, the the correct people for you and avoid like this the the toxic and addicting trap of you know someone who's emotionally comfortable and kind of reassures your beliefs about the world versus like no like grow up get a secure thing so you can actually not run out of fear or not repeat the same patterns and stuff so just accountability around around that aspect of my life I've definitely been uh, immersed in lately uh, but generally yeah usually it's usually stuff that's that's dealing with self improvement or psycho- uh, psychology. Uh, some philosophy, uh, anything that's really applicable for me to live a more fulfilled and competent and courageous and strong, empowered lifestyle. Oh, I love it. I love it. What has been the highlight of your week? Of my week? Um, let me see. Oh, one. Uh, so I had I, I had deactivated temporarily my personal Instagram account. Uh, so I still have the Xeno theory, obviously, but I had two. Well, I, had, I had multiple, but that was like a personal one. But I had found it was it was causing me so much like I wouldn't actually call it stress. It was like micro stress because it was just like a bunch of nonsense and I was consuming on a daily basis. I wouldn't post on that. I wouldn't like create anything on that. Uh, I made a post today talking about like the more you consume, the less you create, the more miserable, miserable you are. Um, so I was just going on that and I found myself just looking at people's stories that I don't even talk to. I don't really know. I don't really like empathize with or care, care to know, uh, just consuming mindless, mindlessly consuming content, just doom scrolling. And next thing I know, an hour passed and I'm like, Oh my God, I just wasted an afternoon doing nothing. I learned nothing. Uh, the algorithm, I mean, it's designed to do that. Like it's designed to just suck you in and you just look at random stuff and just wasn't productive. So, I mean, once I did that, uh, I mean, a couple of my friends, I, I just kind of, I didn't really announce anything. I just deleted it. A couple of my friends were like, where's your Instagram? Uh, but it's definitely, I've noticed like a, a good use, a better use of my time now. I don't find myself just mindlessly going on the app anymore and just scrolling and looking for stuff or uh, it was just very, it was a very passive form of consumption, which I don't like. I always try to be really, really intentional and active with consumption. Like I want to know the reason why I'm looking at something or reading something like there should be a motivation behind it. Versus like, I'm just on Instagram and whoever is posting is just throwing something in my face. Like, I didn't agree to that. Like, I mean, technically I did by being on the app. Yeah. But if I'm not looking for something, I have no reason to be in the app. You know, and I think it's the same thing with like, that's that's how I try to try to model like my my framework of, of consumption. You know, like when you go out to a library, you go out to a bookstore, you're not just going to pick up a random book. And it's like, that's the equivalent of just opening Instagram. It's just shit thrown at you. And it's like. I didn't agree to this. This is irrelevant. I don't care. It's gossip. It's probably not even true. It's not supportive or I just don't care about it. It's not relevant, you know? And it's like, that's what it is. So I've been a lot more deliberate with, with, with my consumption. I love that. John, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. And I wish you so much growth and success with your coaching business, because I think you're, you're doing such a is justice for men and encouraging them to feel comfortable in their vulnerability and their emotions and also being accountable and taking mm-hmm. their power back. And yeah. I, I really loved your time here. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. If you feel inspired by our talk today, please let us know on social media. Depression can be cruel. Please don't deal with it on your own. If you feel it's an emergency, I'll be putting the links and numbers of suicide prevention hotline Please take care. John's program offers three program sessions after enrollment, so you could fill his program out. Access to his website and program will be on the description below. We'll be seeing you on the next download.